Good morning. Please open your Bibles with me to Micah, the book of the prophet Micah in chapter 5. In Among us, we really should not make distinctions of kind of, you know, different levels of spirituality or such things, but the truly faithful among us will know that there are 134 days left until Christmas. <laughs> and when that blessed time of the year comes and the snow falls and everywhere else except for here, what will we do? We will celebrate and remember the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, his incarnation. But we shouldn't let the month of December have exclusive visiting rights to the incarnation. And so we're going to enjoy a Christmas sermon this morning in August, which would work very well if you live in the Southern Hemisphere, because this is their winter, uh, and this is when it gets snowy in New Zealand and Australia and Chile and Argentina and such places. And then they have a summertime, well, summer season Christmas, which is just wrong. But anyway, why a Christmas sermon in August? Well, we're going through Micah, and Micah chapter 5 is one of the classic texts that deals with the birth of our Lord because it speaks directly of the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we're going to study chapter 5 of the book of the prophet Micah, and we will begin with verse 2, because if you recall from last week, uh, we included Micah 5.1 in the portion of text that belongs to chapter 4. So we'll be reading from Micah chapter 5, starting with verse 2, and going to the end of the passage, the end of the chapter. Please listen and give your attention to the perfect word of God. And at, I'm sorry, but as usual, we will pause and make comments as we work through the text, and then we'll conclude with four lessons at the end of it. Please listen to God's word. Micah chapter 5, beginning with verse 2. <clears throat> But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. We see in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 immediately the announcement, the proclamation of the birth of a coming king. And we should look at chapter 4, which we studied last week, and remember that in verses such as verse 8 of chapter 4, the prophet foretold that kingship and dominion would return to Jerusalem. Micah 4, 8, And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it shall come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. So there have already been prophecies in the book of Micah of the return of the king. And as we enter into chapter 5 and verse 2, immediately we are told the place of the birth of this coming king will be Bethlehem Ephrathah. Why is it called Bethlehem Ephrathah? Because there were two different towns or villages named Bethlehem, one in the south, one in the north. And this is specifying the southern uh, city or village of Bethlehem, about five miles out of Jerusalem. And Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 is honestly a bit strange. Why is that? Well, it's because it's so direct. It's so plain and obvious. 
One of the things that we talked about last week in Micah chapter 4 was that the way in which God announced the, the coming glories, the, the sufferings and subsequent glories of Jesus Christ, the way in which God revealed that was through mystery, through metaphor, through vision and dream and obscure and dark language. And so you have to interpret it carefully in the light of the New Testament that unveils or reveals the fullness of God's revelation and takes away the mystery. But in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, we're given what really is not mysterious at all. We're told in Bethlehem, Ephrathah, in the Judean Bethlehem, the king will be born and this will be his birthplace. In fact, it was so plain and so straightforward that when Herod asked the Jewish leaders, where will the king of the Jews be born? They said to him, the prophet Micah says in Bethlehem. And it was common knowledge among the Jews in the gospel of John. One of the reasons why some of the Israelites doubted Jesus, that he was not the Christ, was because they said, you're from Galilee. But we know that the Christ is born in Bethlehem. Now he was born in Bethlehem, but he was raised elsewhere. So they they doubted. They understood, though. The point is, people clearly understood from this direct prophecy that the Messiah, the King, would be born in Bethlehem. Let's continue our reading. Verse 3. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Let's pause. One of the themes running through Micah so far has been that the children of Israel and the children of Judah, the people collectively, they will be sent to exile. The the northern kingdom will be destroyed and exiled. The southern kingdom will be destroyed and exiled. And we see here this language of the remnant or the rest who are brought back. We are told that the return from exile will also be connected to the return of the king, but there shall be a general time of giving them up or giving them over. They will suffer affliction and oppression until the return of the king of Israel. This doesn't mean that there will be no king until the end of a time. There is a, a linear or lineal descendant of David, but none who sit upon the throne. There will be no dominion, no majesty, no kingship, no effective ruling until this one. Let's continue, verses 4 and 5. Similar to Micah chapter 4, we see that when the king comes, he brings with him, he inaugurates an ideal and a perfect life. Verses 4 and 5. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. We'll give a lot of attention, or we'll give more attention to these verses later on in the sermon. But notice with me ever so briefly that we have a shift back from that more direct way of revealing in Micah 5.2 to, again, this, this visionary and dreamlike language. It's a, it's a vision of perfection and a, a vision of the ideal life of security and safety and peace and prosperity as the king returns and shepherds his people. Let's keep the reading going. The other part of verse 5 and into verse 6. 
When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. In the book of Micah, who has been named as the primary threat that Judah must suffer the violence of? It's been the Babylonians, hasn't it? Uh, You will go into exile in Babylon. That's what Micah has foretold with regard to Judah. But that will come later in time, in just a few a few decades. Rather, the, the threat of the day when Micah was writing these words was actually the Assyrians. And it was the Assyrians who destroyed Samaria, uh, the capital city of the north, and indeed the entire northern kingdom. And after the Assyrians invaded and destroyed the northern kingdom, they came down to the southern kingdom of Judah, and they destroyed the fortified cities all the way down to Lachish. Lachish was a large fortified city of Judah. If you ever, I've mentioned this in several sermons, but if you ever have the opportunity to go to the British Museum in London, you can, one of the many, many beautiful things and amazing things you can see there is a very large uh, stone relief panel, which a relief panel would be the, you know, not as high as this wall, but halfway up this wall and the length of it, uh, showing the progressive stages of the siege of Lachish. It shows the Assyrian camp set up outside the city. It shows the siege engines and the earthworks that were raised against the gate and the walls. It shows them attacking Lachish and then sacking it and raising it, as well as uh, destroying the people afterwards. It's it's brutal, it's gruesome, it's horrific, but it's, it's true history of what happened to, this is in the southern kingdom of Judah. And if you remember, after Lachish was destroyed, which essentially you're ready to attack Jerusalem once once Lachish is out of the way, the Assyrians came to Jerusalem during the time of the kingship of Hezekiah. And you may remember that very dramatic moment where the, the leaders of the Assyrian army are shouting in Hebrew to the people of Jerusalem saying, do not trust in Hezekiah, do not trust in Hezekiah's God, Jehovah. No other city, no other army, no other God has stopped us to this point, and neither will he, neither will your city, neither will your God stop us. And the people were greatly afraid, and if you recall, Hezekiah took the letter from the Assyrians and he spread it out before the Lord in the temple, and he said, oh Lord, we are powerless to defend ourselves. We call upon you to fight for us. And God sent an angel out that destroyed over 100,000 soldiers uh, of the Assyrian army, and they they went away. They also heard a a threat of an army marching up from the south, and they moved away from Jerusalem. They also returned to their land, and the king was assassinated by his own son. So God delivered delivered Judah from the might of the Assyrians. And we see here in Micah chapter 5, in these verses 5 and 6, a promise that when the Assyrian comes, uh, he will be destroyed. And we certainly see this happen in the land of Judah. However, I believe that Micah 5, 5 and 6 is is looking at something else in addition to what we've just described. That there's something larger because it speaks of the Assyrian in the singular. And what's happening here is that the prophets tend to take the major enemies of the people of God and use them as a metaphor for all of, all of the enemies of the people of God. 
Just like in the book of Revelation, the city of Babylon is a metaphor for the decadent sin of man, the city of man, the wickedness of the world that opposes God's people. That same um, abstracting of of Babylon is what's happening here. Assyria is being abstracted into the enemies of God's people, the Assyrian. And so God's people will be attacked by the Assyrian, by their enemies, but God will ultimately give them victory over him. Let's continue reading in verse 7, which speaks about the people of God, that the Israelites and the Judeans spread among the nations, opposed by the nations, but triumphing over the nations. Verse 7. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be, the remnant language is important, then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man nor wait for the children of man. What is the point of the imagery of dew and rain? Uh, You may not see dew very often unless you get up at the right times of the day and unless the weather conditions are right here in the dry climate where we live. But dew is everywhere. If there's dew, it's everywhere. It covers the whole ground. That's one of the reasons why Gideon said, make it wet everywhere but dry on the fleece and so on. Dew covers every single blade of grass, has multiple beads and drops of dew on it. And when it rains... It it doesn't just rain on half of your yard, does it? It rains on the whole yard. The rain falls everywhere on the field. And so God's people, when they are exiled, they will be in the midst of the nations like dew from the Lord. God's people everywhere spread abroad throughout the world among the nations. Micah then describes them spread among the nations as being bold, unafraid, and victorious. Verse 8, and the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of my peoples like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which when it goes through treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. The lion imagery is one of no fear. When the lion prowls, of what is it afraid? Nothing. It has no master. It has no predator. Nothing hunts it. It hunts everything. And so if God's people are among the nations, they walk like lions. They are not afraid. They know that there is no power that can overcome them because they walk in the name of the Lord. As Micah proceeds to the following verses, he declares judgment upon God's people. God will judge his own people in a way that purifies them. It's a purifying judgment. Verses 10 and following. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots. And I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. And I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in the last verse, God declares vengeance on the nations that oppose and oppress his people. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. What can we learn from Micah chapter 5? I want to give you four 
Four lessons drawn from the text of Micah chapter 5. Four lessons. Number one, pride and foolishness. Pride and foolishness. Here we're focusing on verses 10 through 14. In verses 10 through 14, God lists various things that he, he states that he will destroy or cut off in his own people, all the language of you and yours. <clears throat> what is in this list of things that God will destroy? Well, we see in this list man's own attempts to be strong, to be wise, and to be blessed or prosperous or confident. Strong, wise, and blessed or prosperous or confident. Think about this with me. Man's attempts to be strong. We read about horses and chariots and strongholds. What are those for? Horses and chariots are for attacking people. Strongholds are for defending yourself. So you have horses and chariots to attack. That's your army. You have strongholds to defend. And what does man do when he amasses and, and gathers up horses and chariots and build, builds large strongholds? He thinks, we're strong. We're strong. I am strong. Look at all of these war horses and chariots that we have, which were the equivalent of the tanks of the ancient world. Look at these strongholds we have, bulwark, bulwarks and ramparts and towers and all kinds of defenses. We are strong. We have made this. We put these blocks together. We built these towers. We built these gates. We built all of these walls. Look at our horses. Look at our chariots. We have so many of them. Man's efforts to be strong. We also have man's efforts to be wise, sorceries, sorcerers, and tellers of fortunes. I will give you the secret knowledge. I will tell you what will happen. Let me give you, tell you what the stars say. Let me read for you the omens of nature. Man thinks we are so wise. We have discerned the secrets of the universe. We have strength. We have knowledge. And this is the knowledge we have acquired. We have discerned it from the stars. We have discerned it from the entrails of an animal. We have divined it. And then we see man's efforts to be blessed or prosperous or confident through their carved images, their pillars, their Asherah images, the work of their hands. Behold, our God is in our midst. We have made a golden calf. We have made a statue. We have crafted and carved pillars. We have raised them to the heavens. Look at our gods. Behold our gods. They will bless us. They will cause our women to give birth. They will cause our animals to give birth. They will make our, our crops to be prosperous and our harvests will be plentiful. This God will give us victory over our enemies and make our men strong. And this will make our trade prosperous. We will become mighty and rich and we will have all the things that we want because look at our gods. But what does God say about man's supposed strength and man's supposed knowledge and man's supposed blessedness and prosperity and confidence? He says, it's the work of your hands. For at the end of verse 13, the work of your hands, you made all this. And God says to you, made it all up it's a farce it's a figment of your imagination it's your pride 
people tend to think of the word pride as a sort of happiness that comes from success. So you say of, of your child or for, of someone, you say, I'm really proud of you for working really hard on that. I'm really proud of you for, for doing your best in such and such a thing. That kind of pride. And that's, that's true. We use that word in a good way for those things, to, to express approval, appreciation, uh, and so on. I'm really proud of you for that. That's not the kind of, that's not what pride really is. And that's not the pride we're talking about here. Pride is essentially self-centeredness, seeking one's own glory, exalting yourself, thinking too highly of yourself, thinking you deserve what you do not deserve. Pride is exalting yourself in your own mind without any justification whatsoever. And you can see the pride of man are horses our chariots, our fortresses, our secret knowledge divined and discerned from nature, our images, our pillars, the gold and the silver. One of the, <clears throat> one of the helpful historical um, connections that we were able to enjoy, my family and I, on the trip that we had this summer in the Mediterranean was getting a better sense of what pagan idolatry actually looked like. What kind of idols did they make? What were the things that they were bowing down, that they were bowing down to? Uh, and it's, it's pretty ridiculous. The kinds of things that they took so much pride in to say, this is it. We have made it. But think about the modern setting. Do not we as Americans take great pride in our military might? I saw recently, and I've seen things like it before, you know, reveal videos for the new stealth bomber, the B-21, that America is going to launch uh, and use and such things. And while it is important for our country to have sufficient armed forces to defend ourselves from threats, it, it, it should actually make us sober and sad that man has such weapons of mass destruction and would glory in them. We should say, we regret to inform you that we have a weapon of mass destruction, and it, it is effective and can be used if it were necessary, but we hope we will never have to use it. But that's not the way that our country would present its military might, is it? Rather, they would say, behold our power, fear us, look at our, our, our horses and chariots and fortresses. It's pride, and other nations do the same. They have military parades and all kinds of things, not for patriotism or for lawful war and defense of our country, but for glory, for it's just a big parade. And we think we know so much, don't we? And yet man will kill the child in the womb because science says it's not a person. And they think that they have prosperity and blessedness because the dollar is strong. And this is the gold and silver that we bow down to. Now it's easy to point out the pride of man and his foolishness in our culture around us. America, launch every nuclear warhead you have. Fire every single missile you have. Get every single tank, every single boat, every single gun, every single weapon that you have 
unite with every other nation in the whole world, gather all the fullness of all their might, launch it all at the exact same moment against God. And what will you accomplish? Nothing. He says, I'll destroy it all. You know, you may squash an ant and say, ha ant. No, you shouldn't do that. But you do do it. But you know, ants can kill humans. Fall down in the jungle and see what happens. You'll be dead. The ants will cover you, peek you enough times, and you're gone. Do we think that we could possibly even be ants against God? Well, there's enough of us. Take the fullness of the might of man's armed forces, and it's nothing. It's nothing to God. Take the fullness of our knowledge. It is nothing. Take the fullness of our gold and our silver. Silver. It's nothing. It's foolishness. It's pride. But brothers and sisters, we as Christians fall into the same traps. In what ways? Well, one of the ways is when we fail to pray. When we fail to pray. When we fail to pray for God's blessing on the means of grace in the church. If we say, look at this beautiful sanctuary. Look at our wonderful pews. Look at this awesome logo we have. Look at our new sign out front. Look at the fellowship hall and the Sunday school classrooms and the offices and the parsonages and the patio and the playground and a parking lot. Look at all these things. These things will carry us for generations. We've got, a, we've got everything. We've got a, a strong budget. We have multiple pastors and deacons and a strong membership. We're good. We've got it. Look at what we have made. Look at all the things that, that we have. Look at our chariots and our horses and our fortresses. Look at our knowledge. We've got an awesome constitution and a great confession of faith. And we do. All of these things are true. But if we fail to pray, God preserve them. God bless them. God make them effective. God help us. God prosper us. God make us faithful. God keep us to the next generation. If we don't accompany all of these wonderful things with prayer, then we're just as proud and just as foolish as the rest of the world. If we don't pray for our daily bread, then we're saying, I don't need God's blessing. I can make my own daily bread. If we don't pray for God's blessing on medicine and medical procedures, we're saying the surgeon's got it. God doesn't need to bless him in this operation. If we fail to pray for God to enlighten our minds and give us a greater knowledge of him and his word, then we're saying, it's, it's good. I've got the knowledge. It's enough. I know, I know enough. I don't need to know any more. I can just tune out. Brothers and sisters, we are proud fools. If we fail to pray regularly and sincerely for God's blessing upon all that we do as a church or as Christians in our families and our homes. The pride of man is not in building things or using things, but in trusting in those things. And we must be careful not to become prideful in our supposed power or knowledge or any person. All such pride is foolishness. Secondly, knowledge and faith. Knowledge and faith. To know something and to believe it are not the same. Faith perfects knowledge. You can know about Jesus without knowing Jesus. Micah 5.2 is where we preach Christmas sermons because it's quoted in the New Testament. Because the Pharisees knew it. When Herod wanted to inquire about the birthplace of the king of the Jews, 
The Pharisees went to Micah 5 too. They knew about the Messiah. They knew about the Christ. They knew about Jesus, but they did not believe in him. Faith includes knowledge. Knowledge is a part of faith. But faith is more than knowledge. Faith means you know something, you assent to it, and you trust in it. You have knowledge, you have assent, I agree, this is true, and trust, I invest myself, I cast myself, I give myself entirely to this true thing, I believe it. There's a distinction between knowledge and faith. And children and youth, this is especially important for you. Children, some of you have been in Sunday school for many years, and some of you have been in VBS earlier this summer. For our youth, some of you have just returned from beach camp, and all of you have heard many different sermons. So you know about Jesus, You have knowledge of Jesus, but do you trust in him? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you have faith in Jesus? And when I ask you, do you have faith in Jesus? I'm not asking you to perform some strange self-examination, searching for some feeling or experience that's happening inside you, that would then tell you, yes, I have faith in Jesus, let me, let me find it first. Don't think that you have to come up with some strange and elusive experience to tell people that you have faith in Jesus. How do you tell someone that you have faith in Jesus? How do you answer the question, do you have faith in Jesus? You say, I believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. And I believe that he died on the cross to save me from my sins. And I believe that he rose from the dead. And I believe that he is coming again to judge the world. And I trust in him. That's how you show that you have faith in Jesus Christ. Not in some wiggly experience, some tingly thing that's happening inside of you, but by professing the faith professing your faith and saying, I believe this. And on that basis, then what happens? The church baptizes you. It openly and publicly recognizes you as a brother or a sister in the faith. And then you join us at the table as we all partake of the same promises of forgiveness and salvation in Jesus Christ. So children, if you've been at VBS or beach camp or Sunday schools or sermons, and the gospel is I'm going to use the word pressed upon you. I mean, put to you specifically. And you feel and you wonder, what what am I supposed to do? How do I move forward from this point? You profess your faith because knowledge and faith are distinct. And it's not enough simply to know about Jesus like the Pharisees knew Micah 5 too. You must believe in him. You must say, I know about Jesus. It is true. It's true that he is God in the flesh. It's true that he died on the cross to save me from my sins. It's true that he rose from the dead. It's true that he's coming again. And I believe in him. I trust in him. It's not a secret or hidden thing that you need to do. Profess your faith. And this, of course, applies not just to children, but 
to all who come and hear the gospel, to the unconverted spouse, to the unconverted friend who has not professed faith in Jesus Christ. The Christian faith is not some secret, arcane thing that you must pry into and only behind closed doors and in dark spaces will you be told the mysteries of the faith. No, we confess our faith openly and publicly and we ask you to join us. Indeed, we command you, Jesus Christ commands you to bow before him and to believe in his name. And if even hearing this, you feel that you need help. You, you, you've told me that I ought to, to, to do these things, but, but how? Will you help me? Of course. Of course. This is what pastors and parents and fellow Christians would love to do is to help you. To help you. Micah 5 verse 2 is a reminder to us all that knowledge and faith are distinct. It is not enough to know about Jesus. You must know him by believing in him, having knowledge, assent, and trust in the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, the last two points will be a little bit more uh, full, a little fuller, and they will help us to understand even more what it means to believe in Jesus Christ. Consider with me in the third place the divine king the divine king. We said that Micah 5.2 is surprisingly straightforward and direct, and it is, but only the first part of Micah 5.2. If you look closely at Micah 5.2 and what is said after Bethlehem is announced as the birthplace of the Messiah or the future king, we will find that Something quite mysterious is is declared, but when I say quite mysterious, please understand my language. I mean, God is revealing something, but through that, that dark language, not a mystery in the sense of God is hiding something from you and doesn't want you to know, but rather God is revealing something to you that was later unveiled in greater fullness and clarity. So what is being revealed here that is later unveiled in greater fullness and clarity? Well, it's that the king who is born in Bethlehem, is God. That he is a divine king. How do we see the humanity and divinity of the king born in Bethlehem? Well, we see this in two goings out or comings forth that are declared in Micah 5 verse 2. There are two goings out or comings forth. So first, we see that from Bethlehem, It says, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. That's the first going out or coming forth. There's one who comes forth from Bethlehem. That's the humanity of the king. If he's born in Bethlehem, he's he's a man. And if he's a son of David, he's a man. There's one who comes forth from Bethlehem. But then the very same person, it says, who's coming forth, the second coming forth, is from of old, from ancient days. And you may think, I don't understand. How can one come forth in the future from Bethlehem who's coming forth is from time without time, eternity? How can this be? There's only one and only one explanation that the king who's born in Bethlehem is God. 
that he is a divine king. From days forever, that's the the literal rendering of from ancient days, who's coming forth is from of old, from days forever. Now, where do you come from? The language of coming from is origin. I come from Massachusetts. That's, That's where I'm from. It's where I was born. This king comes from Bethlehem. It's where he's from. It's where he's born. But then we're told he also comes forth. His origin is days forever. He is a divine king. Well, we see the same truth that the Christ is God and man in other parts of the Old Testament. For example, Psalm 110, which Jesus used with the Jews. He said, how is it that David says, Jehovah said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. David says, how can the Messianic king, who is the son of David, be David's Lord? How can that be? Well, because David's Lord is also God. Another place in the Old Testament where we saw this on Christmas Day last year was from Isaiah 9 and verse 6. Unto us a child is born and a son is given. We said as a child he is born, as a son he is given the humanity and the deity of God. He comes forth from Mary in Bethlehem. This is his human nature. He is truly man. And he comes forth from days forever. This is his divine nature. He is true God. So although time is running away from us, I want to ever so briefly refresh us on some of the most beautiful and profound truths of the Christian faith. Things that are not so much basic, but are fundamental. We're talking about creedal Christianity. Things confessed by creed throughout the history of the church. And when we think of these two comings forth, we're talking about the eternal generation of the Son and the incarnation of the Son. Those are two foundational doctrines. The eternal generation of the Son and the incarnation of the Son. Let's talk about those two things briefly. The coming forth of the Son from ancient days, from days forever, is describing to us the divine nature, the deity, the divinity of Jesus. The eternal generation of the Son. Eternal generation. Why is the Father called the Father and the Son called the Son? The Father is called the Father because eternally he generates or begets his Son. And the Son is called the Son because he is eternally generated or begotten. Now, the word eternal is of utmost importance here. You shouldn't think in your minds, okay, eternity is this infinite line that goes both directions. That's not the eternity we're talking about. That would be a different kind. We're talking about true divine eternity, which is there's no line. There's no succession. God's existence is not subject to now and then and then and then and then and then. That's a successive, linear developing and unfolding of time that's not how God is or how God exists so an eternal generation means God never the father never started generating the son 
and never stops generating the sun. It is a generation without succession. It is an eternal generation, which is to say it is the very being of God that the Father generates the Son and the Son is generated. That's what makes the Father the Father and the Son the Son, and that's what makes them one. Because the Father generates the divine, he, he eternally generates the divine essence as the, as the essence begotten and generated. And that's what the Son is, and nothing else. And so when we're told that this king is the one whose comings forth is from days forever, it is describing to us the eternal generation of the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. You should never think of this generating or begetting as on a timeline or with succession, but rather an eternal generating that never began and never ends because there's no before and after. There's simply an ever-present now, the today of Psalm 2. This is my son, today I have begotten you, that eternal and everlasting today. If you think of human generation and begetting, it begins and it ends. But the language of human begetting is what we use to describe that unspeakable, ineffable, majestic, eternal generation of the Son. So the one who's coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, is then born. How can the one, the divine Son, who is not Son, he, he is the Son because he is eternally begotten of the Father, how can he become, how can he be born? That brings us to the doctrine of the Incarnation. How is the eternal Son of God born? Well, we need to think about that common and received and necessary formula, way of speaking, of one person with two natures. One person with two natures. So jog your heads a little bit, get all the sleepiness out, and think with me about the language of person and nature. A nature is the what of a thing. What am I? Body and soul. That's my human nature. The person is the who. Who am I? Sam I am. We are all the same what, body and soul, humans, but we're all different persons. Who? If you look at Jesus Christ incarnate, and you say, what is that man, or what is that, who, what is Jesus Christ, you'll get two answers. Two what's, two natures. You'll say, eternal son of God, truly God, truly divine. And then you'll say, truly man, body and soul, united in one person, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not two persons. Well, there's like this human person and this divine person somehow blended together. It's not two, who, two who's, it's two what's united in one person. So the incarnation takes place in this way. The human what of Jesus is by the power of the Holy Spirit conceived in the, in the womb of the Virgin Mary. A human nature, a human what, body and soul, is caused to be formed in the ordinary and normal way that human bodies develop. The conception didn't take place by the normal and ordinary way, but from that point forward, a baby begins to develop. That's the what, the body, a human body and soul. But what, but who is the person of that what, of that body and soul? 
The who of that body and soul growing in Mary is the eternal son of God. The eternal son of God gives his personhood or personality to that human nature. He completes it. He makes it a true human, not just a a true human what, but a true human who. So that the person of that body and soul is the eternal son of God. And in this way, we see that the, the one whose comings forth is from of old, from ancient days, from days forever, is born in Bethlehem Ephrathah, the ruler in Israel. The what is God and man. The who is Jesus Christ. There's much more that we could say about that. But Micah 5.2 gives us a wonderful repetition and presentation of the ever-important doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son and the incarnation of the Son for us and for our salvation. I had more things to say, but time has run away, so we'll conclude with the fourth point. Number four, the divine shepherd. What does this divine king do? Well, he's a divine shepherd. He will shepherd his people. And as a divine shepherd, he's a perfect shepherd. If you have time on your own, I suggest that you read Ezekiel chapter 34, where God denounces and curses the false shepherds of Israel for taking advantage and oppressing the sheep that God entrusted to them. And after denouncing the the wicked shepherds of Israel, we receive these wonderful promises in Ezekiel 34. Listen to three different verses ever so briefly, where God declares that he himself, Jehovah says, I will be their shepherd. Ezekiel 34, 11, for thus says the Lord God, Lord God is Adonai Jehovah. So Yahweh Yahweh declares, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. Divine shepherd. Ezekiel 34, 15, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. Again, Adonai Jehovah. So Jehovah Yahweh, the God of Israel, says, I will be the shepherd of my people. And in verse 23, we read this, Ezekiel 34, 23. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Which again makes you scratch your head and say, wait a second. I thought that Jehovah is the shepherd of Israel. How is it that David, how is it that the Christ, that the king, that the man, is the shepherd. I thought that God is the shepherd. Well, look at Micah 5, 4. This king who was born in Bethlehem, what does he do? This divine king of Micah 5, 2 also shepherds the flock. The divine king stands before them. He stands at the head of his flock. He leads them. He guides them. He defends his people. He will stand. He is at their head and he shepherds them. He acts with divine power. How does he do this? In the strength of Jehovah, in the strength of the Lord, and in the majesty of the name of Jehovah his God. How can he have divine power in the majesty of the divine name? Because he is Jehovah. Because he is the divine king and the divine shepherd. He stands. He shepherds. He causes his flock to dwell safely and securely. And the end of verse First, the beginning of verse 5, and he shall be their peace. 
it helps us to remember all of the things Jesus is fulfilling and declaring in his earthly ministry when he says, I am the good shepherd. When he says, I will make you lie down, which is usually translated, I will give you rest. It literally means I will make you lie down. He said, my peace I give to you. In all of this and more, Jesus is saying, I am the divine shepherd. I am God. What is the, what is the application for us when we see the divine king and the divine shepherd? What, what are we supposed to do? How do I respond to this as a Christian? Your response is to love the Lord and to trust him with a greater faith. All of the shepherding imagery is designed to tell you how protected you are how secure you are, how loved and provided for you are. If Jesus is your shepherd and he is God in the flesh, can anyone overpower him? Can anyone get around him to the flock? Can any, will he ever lead you astray? Will he ever neglect you or fail to provide for you? Will he ever be a negligent shepherd or an unkind shepherd? Would he ever do anything that would ever be bad for the sheep? No, what did he say? I lay down my life for the sheep. We ought to trust in him. So, Pastor, the application is to trust. I'm already a believer, brothers and sisters. We grow in our faith. We are fortified and bolstered in our faith. And the way that faith is fortified is by looking at the object of faith, Jesus Christ and his precious and beautiful perfections. He is my divine king. He is my divine shepherd. But before we conclude the sermon... We need to realize that not all shepherding is so pleasant for the enemies of God. In verse 5, we read that the Assyrian gets shepherded. In what way is the Assyrian shepherded? It says, with the sword. What does the shepherd do to the wolf and to the bear and to the lion? The shepherd kills them without any mercy because they stand as a threat to the sheep. And so, all those who hear the good news of Jesus Christ as the good shepherd, if they fail to respond to that message in the faith that we have talked about, knowing and agreeing or assenting and trusting, if you don't bow to him and trust in him, the shepherd will shepherd you in the most terrible of ways for your sake. How does this chapter conclude? And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. The divine shepherd will shepherd all of us, the sheep into the sheepfold and the goats into everlasting destruction. But for those who do indeed trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, what do we say? We say, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And brothers and sisters, let me ask you, is Jesus Christ your peace? It says, and he shall be their peace. No, my peace is an insurance policy. No, my peace is, is my house being paid off. No, my peace is a brand new car that's going to last me forever. No, my peace is some other thing. None of those are guaranteed. They may be wise. They may be good. What is our peace? He, the prince of peace is our peace. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I shall not be in need of anything. What do you need 
that Jesus does not supply to you? What do you need that Jesus does not provide for you? The Lord is my shepherd, the one whose goings forth are from days forever, who acts with divine power and divine majesty. He is my shepherd, and he is my peace. I shall not be afraid. So brothers and sisters, don't be afraid. As you are spread among the nations like dew and like waters of the rain on the grass, do not fear. Be at peace. Jesus Christ, the Lord, is your shepherd. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for our divine shepherd, our divine king, our God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he cares for us, that he provides for us, that he gives us all that we need in abundance, that he corrects us, that he instructs us, that he warns us, that he encourages us, that he loves us. We pray that you would help us to be good sheep, to be loyal, to be obedient, to be humble, to be dependent, to be believing, to be confident, to be bold and to be courageous. We pray that you would help us to be not just do on the grass, but also salt and light, that the nations would know not just of Jesus, but would know Jesus through us as a church here in this place. And we pray finally that you would bring salvation to our children, to family members who hear the gospel, that they might believe in the name of Jesus Christ, God and man, our beloved Savior in whose name we pray. Amen.